Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 4. We are still in the story of Cain and Abel. And we haven't even got up to the point yet where Cain kills his brother. That's going to be today, though. Looking at where we've been then, let's go ahead and read the verses that we've covered so far in the previous two weeks. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. All right, so we got up that far last week. One of the things I want to point out is in verse 5, his countenance fell, right? Cain's countenance fell. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. That has to do with his mood, all right? His countenance fell. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? So in verse 6, it's emphasized again, his countenance, and you've got that word fallen, okay? So fell in verse 5, fallen in verse 6. In verse 7, it says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Where it says accepted right there, the Hebrew word behind that actually has to do with encouraging or building up or lifting up of one's countenance. So it can include lifting up. So you can see there's kind of a play on words in a sense where you've got his mood fell, his mood was fallen. God's providing him the opportunity to make good choices where his mood can be lifted up. So instead of going down, it can go up, right? So we've got two, two indicators of down, one indicator of up. Let's see if there's anything else that we might run across in today's study that might have some bearing on, on this discussion here. In verse 8, it says, Now Cain talked with his brother, with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up. Cain rose up. Did Cain rise up in, in spirit, in mood? Did, is that how he rose up? No. It says there that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. All right? So here we had his countenance fell, 
his countenance had fallen. God pleads with Cain and says, make a good choice here. I want to see that you're lifted up, right? So if he had made a good choice, his countenance could have been lifted up. But instead, what happens? He lifts up, he rises up in violence and kills his brother. He chooses the way opposed to God. And what's lifted up? Himself, his violence, as opposed to the countenance that could have been lifted up had he followed God's choices for him. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. You know, interestingly, NIV has a little bit of a different modification to the way that that reads, that the New King James reads. In the NIV, it says this, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. A little bit of a different reading, but it has Cain proposing that they go out into the field. I wonder which field they went to. Because it sounds like Cain did the inviting. I mean, I'm wondering, they both have vocations that have to do with the field. Cain has an attachment to the field because he's growing things out there. Presumably in a particular plot of land, a particular area, he's got his vegetables growing. He's got his grains growing. Whatever it is that he's growing, he's growing. He's using the field. He's out in the field. He's got his own little area. Well, let's call it Cain's field. And then Abel, he's got his vocation. He's got something going on in the field as well, right? He's tending the sheep, right? He's tending to livestock. He's a keeper of sheep. He's out in the field, presumably a plot of ground that he might be able to call his own, that he's raising sheep. Okay, so let's call that Abel's field. So if we've got an area that Cain's using, and we call it Cain's field, and an area that Abel's using, call it Abel's field, I wonder if Cain invited Abel out to one of these two fields. If I'm premeditating murder, I'm probably not going to want him to mess up my space. Let's go out into his space. I wonder if Cain suggested they go out to the area where Abel raises his sheep, where he's pro providing shepherd service for his sheep. I wonder if Abel was killed in the midst of his sheep. Why is this curious to me? Well, if Cain ends up killing Abel in the midst of Abel's flock, it seems to be a little bit of a foreshadowing of a great shepherd who was struck in the midst of his flock. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, and this is the night he was going to be betrayed, it says, Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I wonder if Cain in striking Abel the shepherd, if the sheep were scattered. I wonder if this original killing foreshadowed the murder of Jesus. I don't know. It's speculation, something to consider, something to think about. It's kind of interesting, but sad, too, when you think about it. So Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. Right? What was standing in the way of Cain, in, in maybe in Cain's mind, when his offering was unacceptable? Perhaps Cain was thinking, my brother's offering that was acceptable. If it hadn't been for my brother and his offering, perhaps God would have looked on mine with honor would have looked on mine with favor. Perhaps Cain had come to the point where he had rationalized and 
justified himself in thinking that if Abel wasn't there, if Abel didn't provide that offering, I would be acceptable to God. It's all Abel's fault. And he ends up killing his brother. Okay, so he's gotten rid of the competition in a sense. He's gotten rid of his brother. But what is he going to do now about God? Because God had come to him and God had warned him. And God said, I saw what you did. And God said, I see what you can become. And Cain refused that. Killed his brother, took out the competition, but now he's got God to contend with. What are you going to do with God? You might kill your brother. What are you going to do with God? You're not going to get rid of God. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain. This is actually the second time that we have recorded here anyway. Where God comes to Cain and has a conversation with him. Right? I mean, we saw earlier that God came to Cain and said, well, you know what? If you make this choice, then this is what you can expect. If you make this choice, this is what you can expect. And now we're having at least a second conversation that's recorded that God has with Cain. You see, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, sometimes we might be tempted to think that they were kicked out of the presence of God. In a sense, they were. They were kicked out of the place that God had intended for them to dwell in that was especially prepared and especially nice to dwell in but they were kicked out of that they were not allowed to go back to the garden anymore god had blocked the way for them to go back to that place but it doesn't mean god was restricted in having to stay in the garden mankind adam and eve were kicked out of the garden never to come back they were restricted from an area it's kind of like a protective order here at the courthouse, we see protective orders all the time, criminal protective orders, domestic violence protective orders. We see orders that prohibit a person from coming within a certain distance of a particular location. It might have an address on it. You're to stay at least 100 yards away from this residence or this business located at this address. And sometimes the protective orders have stipulations for visitation or child custody exchange. Sometimes the protective orders are called peaceful contact orders. We'll often call them peaceful contact orders as if the parties can still have contact, but it must be of a peaceful nature. And sometimes they're just flat out no contact orders. When You just can't trust the parties that are involved to be at peace with one another. That They've got a history that shows that at least one of the persons in the relationship just can't be trusted to have a peaceful contact. So you, it's just a no contact order. They can't have contact anymore. It's as if Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They had a protective order in place. They had a stipulation that said, you're to stay away from this particular location. You're not to go anymore to this location. But perhaps that order, in a sense, is kind of like a peaceful contact order. Perhaps they still had interactions with God. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we do see that their child, that Cain seems to have face-to-face conversations with God. He doesn't seem to be too surprised when God shows up in the first one that we read about. Presumably because maybe there are others. I mean, how did Cain find out that his offering wasn't acceptable? Perhaps that was a visitation as well. Perhaps God had said, you know what? Your offering is not acceptable to me. So it sounds like God is allowing for contact, even when it's outside the garden. So even though they might be outside of the place that God had intended to dwell with his people, that it doesn't necessarily mean that God stays over here in the garden, mankind stays over here, and that there isn't any interaction anymore. No, it seems like there is interaction. We do have Cain, and we do have God talking with one another. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? 
Do you remember another time that God ended up showing up on the scene and asking where previous to this? Yeah, it was in the, it was in the Garden of Eden. Remember that after the sin of man, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, and God shows up and he asks the where question over there, right? And then you have this situation here. Now, by the way, that was over in chapter 3, verse 9. It says, therefore, or then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So here we have a similar situation where God is calling to Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? Now, you remember, we decided as we were looking through that, obviously, it's not that God doesn't know the answer to the question. The purpose of the question isn't to help God gain understanding or gain knowledge that he doesn't already have. The purpose of the question was to engage Cain in this situation, or Adam in the previous situation, to engage these people in conversations with the eye to see them come to the point of confession. Where is Abel your brother? Where is Abel your brother? Notice the word brother shows up quite a bit in this story. right? When we're looking at this Cain and Abel story, if you count up all the times that brother shows up, it's actually seven times. Seven times the word brother shows up brother seven times what does Cain say he says I did not know am I my brother's keeper notice what happens there it's as if the Holy Spirit inspires Moses as he's penning these words to emphasize the relationship between Cain and Abel it's one of brother yet Cain and his response to God would like to take it to something less than that Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, he puts the emphasis on the word keeper. As somebody maybe who would keep sheep. Am I my brother's custodian? There is a situation here where Cain is trying to distance himself from the relationship that God intends two brothers to have. Where God might intend for brothers to have a closeness, Cain is seeking distance. Where God is intending for a relationship be between brothers to carry with it the idea of obligation, Cain is asserting detachment. Where God would imply that brothers should have a mutuality in their relationship, Cain is emphasizing an individuality. Where God would want brothers to see as being connected to one another, Cain's proposing disconnected. God wants brothers to be engaged. Cain is seeking to be disengaged. God puts the emphasis on their relationship as brother. Cain puts it on keeper. This idea of keeper, it actually shows up two times previous to this story. There have been two other keepers that we've seen as we've been working our way through Genesis. One of them is Adam. Adam was made keeper of the garden. You find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 2.15 ends up saying, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. To tend and keep it. So what is included in the responsibility of a keeper, as we would read in that situation, that we would imagine would be included in, say, his job description as keeper of the garden there in Genesis 2.15? Well, you would have somebody that's probably somebody who tends to the garden, as it says right there. All right? Included in that would be the idea of nurture, right? He's to nurture, he's to cultivate, all right? So as a keeper of the garden, he tends to the garden, he nurtures the garden, he cultivates it, he cares for it, right? He cares for it. 
Another place that we find the word keeper used in, the, in a story prior to this is actually when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Turn to Genesis 3.24. Genesis 3.24 says this, So he, that being God, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. To keep the way to the tree of life. It's actually the same Hebrew word there. So here we have an angelic guardian and then we've got this flaming sword guarding the way or keeping the way. What's involved there in, in keeper in that passage? Well, you've got you've got the idea of this guard guarding the way, right? You've also got the idea of protecting or defending. Protecting or defending. So up until this point, you've got the idea, the, the word behind, the Hebrew word behind this English word keeper, you've got the idea of one that tends or nurtures or cultivates or cares for, one who guards or protects or defends. And Cain says, where's my brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my, am I my brother's keeper in the sense that I, I'm to tend and nurture and cultivate? to care for, to guard, protect, or defend? It's a rhetorical question on Cain's part. He's implying no, right? Isn't that what he's suggesting by the way that he's responding? He's like, I'm not this. When God would say, you should have been. This is who you should have been to your brother. Even if you want to diminish your relationship with your brother to keep her, you still should have been all of these and you weren't. You weren't these. This idea of keeper, God says, even if Cain won't accept upon himself the responsibility of being a keeper of his brother, God would say, I voluntarily be keeper for Israel. Turn to Psalm 121, 4 through 8. Psalm 121, actually we'll start in verse 3. Psalm 121, verses 3 through 8. God says, I'll be a keeper. Psalm 121, verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That psalm peppered with the idea that God is willing to be the keeper of his people. Shows up many, many times in that psalm. God says where Cain rejected being a keeper of his brother, God steps up and says, I'll be a keeper of a nation. I'll be a keeper of my people. And then you've got also in Numbers chapter 6. Go to Numbers chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22. Numbers 6, 22 says this, and we're going 22 to 26. Actually, let's start here. Let's start at verse 24. Verse 24 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. You recognize these words? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Did you notice that first one? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. That sounds so nice. That's so comforting. That's so quaint. Where did this prayer come from? What poet of Israel came up with the words of this benedictive type of statement here? It's the Lord himself. 
the Lord himself, look at verse 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's not that this was poetic, flowery language on the part of some poet among the number of the Hebrews. This is actually God himself saying, when you bless the people, here are the words. Here are the words I want you to emphasize to them. And among those are, the Lord bless you and keep you. Cain rejected being a keeper of his brother. God says, I'll be your keeper. I'll be your keeper. Genesis 4.10, going back to Genesis. Genesis 4.10, and he, this being God now, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What have you done? Again, a question that God is asking. He knows the answer to this already, but he's still seeking conversation with Cain in this sense. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Interesting, the voice of your brother's blood. We have no recorded words on the part of Abel throughout this whole episode. You read through all of Genesis 4. You don't find any statements recorded and attributed to Abel in this story. In fact, you don't find any statements recorded and attributed to him anywhere in the Bible. He's listed among those as being a prophet. Jesus himself made that declaration about Abel as we talked about last week. But we don't know what he ever said. We don't have any words attributed to him. But I tell you what, we have his voice recorded in the sense of his blood. God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood. What is Abel's blood crying out? Putting up here, Abel's blood underline it what is his blood crying out vengeance justice right his blood is crying out vengeance justice how about judgment that's what his blood is crying out he's been murdered an innocent victim of murder what would his blood be crying out if not vengeance and justice and judgment not unlike another group. Turn to Revelation, the end of the book. Starting in Genesis, now we're in Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is in a section, most of your Bibles are going to have it, uh, it's called the fifth seal. And 9 and 10 says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So we're, here we have martyrs, Abel being the original martyr. And here we have a declaration on part of the martyrs as seen in heaven, still yet future. And we have a situation here where they're saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge right? Abel's blood crying out judgment until you avenge. Abel's blood crying out for vengeance until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So what would Abel's blood be crying out? Vengeance. Justice. Judgment. 
go to Numbers 35. I want to show you something really interesting about the blood spilled by murder victims and what it does to the land. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 35. Numbers 35-33 says this. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. So anytime you've got a murder, that blood cries out, just as Abel's blood cried out in that murder. And it cries out for vengeance, it cries out for judgment, and it cries out for justice. And unless the murderer is put to death, spills his own blood, there is no justice. There is no vengeance. There's no judgment, justice, or vengeance. It ends up with the passage of time becoming a debt, right? In this courthouse, it's not uncommon for us to handle murder trials. And sometimes it's kind of strange to talk to people that aren't familiar with what goes on here. And in conversation... They find out that we handle murder trials. You know, the conversation comes up. Hey, do you, you know, what's the worst case you've ever seen? Oh, I'm sorry. There's actually so many. They all kind of blend together. Well, have you ever had a murder trial? Well, yeah, actually, we do quite a few murder trials. You do? Are you the courtroom for murder trials? Well, actually, murder trials are pretty common in many of these courtrooms. Really? There's that many? There are so many murder trials that we handle that we lose track of them. And to tell you something more, for these murder trials that we're handling, this is just a small percentage of the actual murders that are committed. These are just the ones that they actually identify somebody as being involved in the crime. These are the ones that they had enough information to work with to bring the case as far as this point where they can have a trial we don't even see the ones where they're unsolved where the murderer isn't identified and whenever there's injustice in that way where a murderer gets away with it in this life anyway God sees God knows God watches God makes a record but in the land, when murder is something that goes unpunished, the land becomes defiled, and we accrue a debt that grows and grows that we'll never be able to pay off. Because where's the justice if we end up catching a murderer and find out he's committed ten? If the Bible requires that his blood be spilled, the murderer's blood be spilled to pay off the first of the mur those murders, what about the other nine? Is there any justice there? Is justice satisfied when the murderer gets away with murder ten times? And by the time he gets caught, I mean, he can only give his life once. And so there's a, a debt there that's accrued. And the land becomes defiled and polluted. What happens when a land becomes defiled and polluted? Well, turn to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 18. Leviticus 18, and we're going to start with verse 24. Leviticus 18, 24.
God says this, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So here we have what happens when a land becomes defiled. It says that the land vomits out its inhabitants. That's kind of strange. What does it look like when the land vomits out its inhabitants? Well, if you look at the context of these words here, this is basically a message from God to Moses to the people and saying, I'm about to lead you into this land where these people have made bad choices where the land is defiled because of their bad choices. And you are going to go in there with my power, and you are going to conquer them. And from their perspective, what is that going to look like? From the perspective of the people living in the land, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like terrorist acts being perpetrated upon them by an invading foreign enemy. So what happens when the land is defiled? What happens to the inhabitants of that land? The land vomits them out. What does that look like? In this situation, that looked like terrorist activity coming upon them, killing every man, woman, and child, if you read through the other passages. It looks like terrorist acts being committed upon their own soil, perpetrated by an invading foreign enemy. So what does that mean for us? If we live in a land where we have been accruing a debt of injustice, a debt of a lack of judgment, a debt requiring vengeance, if the blood shed in our land goes unheeded by any in the land other than God himself, what should we expect? Should we expect any different than these people who were in a defiled land? who God empowered his old people to come in and wipe them out. From their perspective, they were being taken out by a foreign army, by a foreign enemy coming in and annihilating them. The blood of murder victims still cries out today, and I shudder to think what could be in store for this land with the debt that we've accrued in this area. Turn to Hebrews 12.24. Hebrews is near the end of your New Testament. Actually, let's start at verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22, 23, and 24 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 
Jesus' blood. Right? Jesus' blood says it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. We've already looked at what Abel's blood says, right? Abel's blood cries out. What is it crying out? It's crying out vengeance. It's crying out justice. It's crying out judgment. So what are the better things that Jesus' blood is crying out? Well, in regard to vengeance, Jesus' blood is crying out satisfied. What? Abel's blood cries out vengeance, and Jesus' blood cries out vengeance satisfied. Regard to justice, Jesus' blood is crying out done. Justice is done. Regarding judgment, Jesus' blood is crying out paid. When Jesus declared upon the cross to tell us die, when he declared it is finished, this is what we're talking about. The blood that he shed on the cross, it satisfies, it pays for the debt that we've accrued. It satisfies vengeance. Justice is done and judgment is paid. We accrued a debt we could never pay. And he paid it for us. There was no hope for us in a hope for paying off this debt. But he stepped in and paid our debt for us. Does that mean it's automatically appropriated to every single person that ever lived? No, it's not. It's available and effective enough that it can cover the debt accrued by every individual, every nation that's ever existed. His blood is sufficient to do that. But if it's not appropriated, if they don't seek out the forgiveness that his blood accommodates and affords, his blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your death that you were willing to come and die in our place while we were yet sinners Christ died for us you paid off a debt that we accrued and maybe didn't even know that we had accrued such a debt a debt that we could never pay there is blood on our hands Lord we are a sinful people living in a blood-stained land. And it's amazing that you've been as patient with us as you've been. Where this land surely cries out, the blood of, that's been spilled in this land surely cries out, vengeance, justice, judgment. And surely those things are near and maybe even beginning, unless we as a nation turn back to you. Help us, Lord, to cry out for forgiveness. Help us, God, to humble ourselves and to pray, to seek your face and to turn from our wicked ways.
help us, Lord, to receive the forgiveness that is afforded us because of the great loving act of you dying in our place. Thank you, Lord, that you shed your blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. In Jesus' name, amen.